1: This podcast is brought to you by Safe Ireland and Airbnb, working in partnership to support domestic violence survivors across Ireland. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle and I have a cold. It's uh, completely wiped me out, actually. And I'm not looking for sympathy because I know it could be a lot worse. But it feels like I haven't had a cold for years because of COVID and face masks and all the washing of hands probably. And maybe uh, coming down with an actual common or garden sniffles is a real sign that we might be actually at the beginning of the end of this pandemic carry on. I'm choosing to believe that anyway. So if you've got a cold, you have my sympathy. We're not used to it at all. And it's very strange. Today, we have a brilliant conversation with a woman called Jade Jordan. She's written a fantastic memoir with a difference and it's a magnificent saga about race, family, destiny and most of all about community. So I can't wait for you to hear that. But before we get to that, a couple of things that caught my eye. This Saturday, the 25th of September is the 10th annual March for Choice and it's happening uh, mindful of public health concerns. So the Abortion Rights Campaign and all their partners are going to hold a socially distanced, static rally for free, safe, legal and local abortion at dail Erin. Éireann. They're assembling at 1.45pm this Saturday and the rally will begin at 2pm. Now you might be wondering, considering we repealed the Eighth Amendment in 2018, why there is still a need for protest? Well, the theme of this year's march is breaking barriers and it's a reference to the many barriers that still exist to accessing abortion care across the island of Ireland, despite the repeal of the Eighth Amendment and decriminalisation of abortion in the North. The Abortion Rights Campaign, also known as ARC, have done brilliant research which shows that major human rights violations are embedded in the 2018 abortion legislation and says they must be addressed as part of a forthcoming review. That's the view uh, anyway of human rights expert Mairead Enright. She's a reader in feminist legal studies at the Birmingham Law School and co-founder of Lawyers for Choice. Mairead gave her views at the publication of research this week into women's experiences of abortion services since the commencement of the 2018 Termination of Pregnancy Act. Just a reminder that under the act, abortion is legally available on request up to 10 weeks gestation from a GP, and in a hospital between 10 and 12 weeks. It's permitted after that in cases where the foetus would die within 28 days of birth or where there is real and substantial threat to the woman's life or health. And the Act stipulates that the law will be reviewed after three years and the Department of Health has said that an independent expert will be appointed to do that in the coming weeks. But the research by the Abortion Rights Campaign finds a series of issues in the legislation's operation, uh, I'm just going to list a couple of them. They're the delays in accessing abortions, which ARC says are caused by the uneven provision of services across the state and the mandatory three day delay between requesting an abortion and getting one. A lack of information about how to access abortion services and a lack of information also about what an abortion entails, particularly the level of pain involved for those who have early medical abortions. The ARC research also shows that many accessing abortion care have experienced protests and verbal abuse outside clinics, including people doing rosaries and saying stupid, hurtful things about going to hell and punishment. And other people encountered uh, protesters outside hospitals with coffins um, and praying. So this harassment, as we all know, causes significant distress in people trying to access care. One participant in the research stated this should be illegal. They have no idea what I've been through and the intimidation negatively impacts all people accessing clinics and hospitals to varying degrees. So it really is awful and legislation is urgently needed to ensure that patients and doctors are no longer in fear of anti-abortion harassment outside of healthcare facilities. The abortion rights campaign is demanding that Minister Stephen Donnelly make good on his commitment to make legislation for safe access zones his priority. So, as you can hear, there is still an awful lot to protest about, and you can do so this Saturday outside the doll at the Tenth March for Choice, which is a rally this year because of the pandemic, and it starts at two p.m. I want to mention some other stories that caught our eye, uh, and this is—I mean, it's—it's it's just very depressing. It's domestic abuse figures that have come out, and it is that almost six hundred and ninety domestic abuse incidents have been reported to the Gardie every week on average this year. And that's from official figures. There's a total of nearly 24,700 cases were brought to the attention of Gardie up to September 9th this year, with Dublin accounting for more than a third of the cases at almost 9,000 incidences. The figures were provided by Minister of State at the Department of Justice, Hildegard Nocton, in response to a parliamentary question from Clare TD, Michael McNamara. And My immediate thoughts on this is that um, there's basically a pandemic been happening for decades in this country and across the world. A pandemic of abuse, um, domestic terrorism, whatever you want to call it. It's been going on for years and these figures are so stark, but there's no Neffet style group of mostly men being put together to see how to contain it, to see how to fix this problem. There's no men on podiums telling us every day the figures which, of course, worsened during the pandemic. There's no state-sanctioned diktats aimed at helping the mostly women who are affected. Instead, the figures keep on rising and it's not treated like an emergency. And I wonder, and I'm sure you wonder, why that is. Why it is not treated like an emergency. 690 calls a week. Well, we don't really wonder why it's not treated as an emergency, do we? I think we know. I think we're very clear on that score. Uh, I have to also mention, very sadly, um, teacher Sabina Nessa in England, who was thought to have been murdered as she made her way to meet a friend at a pub. Officers investigating the killing of the 28-year-old said she left her home on the Astell Road and walked through Cater Park last Friday to the Depot Bar in Kidbrook Village in London, where she was attacked. So she had a five-minute walk to meet her friend in a pub and the Metropolitan Police said her body was found near the One Space Community Centre at Kidbrook Park Road in the Royal Borough of Greenwich on Saturday. Sabina never arrived at the pub and is thought to have been murdered as she walked through the park, the force said. A post-mortem examination carried out on Monday was inconclusive. Detective Inspector Joe Garrity said Sabina's journey should have just taken over five minutes, but she never made it to her destination. We know the community are rightly shocked by this murder, as are we, and we're using every resource available to us to find the individual responsible, we believe there are still others out there who may have information that could help. So we're thinking of Sabina Ness's family and friends and again of Sarah Avrard and of all the women and girls who have been murdered or attacked, just going for a walk or going for home, all those women who never got there. And I know it's very bleak this week in terms of news about women, but I just have to mention Kabul. Because to nobody's surprise, absolutely nobody's surprise, the Taliban's effective ban on women working sank in on Monday, sparking rage over the dramatic loss of rights after millions of female teachers and girls were barred from secondary school education. The Taliban have gone on, of course, about this softer version of their brutal and repressive regime of the 1990s. But of course, it's just total bullshit. And as I said, absolutely nobody's surprised that they are doing this as one woman who was sacked from her senior role at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs said, I may as well be dead. I was in charge of a whole department and there were many women working with me. Now we've all lost our jobs. And of course, she did not want to be identified for fear of reprisals. The acting mayor of Kabul said over the weekend that virtually every municipal job held by women would be refilled by men. Only women who could not be replaced by men would be allowed to keep working, including some skilled jobs in technical fields and female public Toilet attendance. Yes, that's the jobs they would like women to do. That came after the education ministry ordered male teachers and students back to secondary school at the weekend, but made no mention of the country's millions of women, educators and girl pupils. We will be talking about Afghanistan soon on the podcast and hopefully talking to some women there and some women who have managed to get out of that country So after all of that, today's episode, (laughs) today's episode is a hopeful and uplifting story. And I'm sorry for bringing it down, but we need to tell you these things and talk about these things as well, because they're going on. And as much progress as we make, there's still awful stories about women happening. Anyway, this is a hopeful and uplifting story. This is the result of many hours of delving into the past by Jade Jordan, the actor you'll know from various film and theatre projects. Jade has written a book called Nanny, Ma and Me and it's the story of how Jade's grandmother Kathleen left Ireland for England in the late 1950s to train as a nurse. While there she fell in love and married a Jamaican man. They had two sons and a daughter, Dominique, and they settled in London's diverse East End. But when Kathleen decided to return home to Dublin she discovered that the colour of her children's skin set them apart and their new lives would be very different to the ones they had known. It's a story of determination, of struggle and... As I said, it's also hopeful and uplifting because at the heart of the story is the transformative power of community. We were delighted to welcome actor and writer Jay Jordan on the podcast to talk about her new book, Nanny, Ma and Me. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the Women's Podcast. Now, would you tell me, first of all, how you came up with the idea for your extraordinary book, Nanny, Ma and Me?
2: Of course. So it kind of started back in... 2016, I was living in London at the time and I was struggling as an actor. I had just left drama school. Things weren't going the way that I wanted them to go. I was three years out and I'd hit a point where I didn't know what I was doing with myself. And I sat in Bills in Soho with my friend David. And I was like, I need to do something. I I need to be working. And he said to me, well, why don't you create your own work? And the thought of that absolutely terrified me. I was just like, oh, I couldn't do that. I I need to do other people's work. But it set with me and I thought about it. And he said, well, you've got a story there. You've always wanted to tell your family story. Over the years, I'd meet people and they'd ask, you know, where I was from or my background. And I'd go into a story and I'd have them for hours then. (laughs) So I always had this story that I wanted to tell. So I was like, you're absolutely right. So I came home that Christmas and I started recording my nanny. Just popped up the tripod, started asking her a couple of questions and kind of continued that when I came home at Easter or for birthdays. I probably did it over the course of a year. And we all went into lockdown last March. Didn't know what to do with my time like everybody else. Um, I had parked the videos on a shelf and kind of life takes over and I hadn't forgot about it, but it was always there. I just didn't have the time. And I started delving into these videos and just started writing on pieces of paper, not even the laptop, just trashing out ideas for maybe short films, films, scripts, plays. I didn't know what I was doing. And then the movement, um, George Floyd had passed away, and this big movement in the world was taking place, and I suppose I was delving into stories that were upsetting, heartbreaking, hit a chord, and then this happened and I was just like, oh my God, I felt pain, I felt anger, I felt annoyed. I felt all of these emotions and I got in touch with my mom and I was like, look, I don't know how you feel right now, but I'm in bits here. I, I really am. I'm, I'm hurting and I feel like I want to express myself and do something about it. So I said, how would you feel about me recording you? and doing some videos maybe for social media to let people know that you know racism is a thing here in Ireland yes we've got better over the years but it was still a thing and it was a thing when you moved over and I'd love for people to know that so straight away my mum said no not doing any videos don't put me anywhere I will do audios and I was like great even more effective because people just need to listen as opposed to watching so I asked her just a couple of questions um what it was like moving over, how she feels, any experiences she may have come to when moving over, how she was treated, um, family, and I kind of had a lot of footage, about forty-five minutes, um, of audio, and my friend David yet again, um, he helped me; he's great with all that techie stuff because I'm not. Um, I approached him and I was like, "Here, look, I'd love to do a series of um audios. Will you give us a hand?" And yeah, I. I did a series over a course of four or five days and just popped them up on social media with a, a black background and just white writing. And the feedback was just mind-blowing. Um, now, I didn't do it as, oh, here, hey, this is us. I did it just to let people know, basically. That was my form of expression when the movement happened. And I couldn't believe it. People were just like, what, that happens? Or that happened? Or, yeah, people just couldn't... Not that they were being rude about it, but maybe they weren't around people that were black and brown and have ever experienced or heard that. So the feedback was just amazing. And then um, the publishers got in touch, Kira Dorley, and she asked me, would I, she heard I was writing, would I be interested in having a meeting? And I kind of went from there Um At the time, I was writing for an application for a scheme called Actors Creator with Bow Street and Screen Ireland, where they were given 30 actors the opportunity to write, produce, act in and direct if you wanted. So I was in the process of doing that as well. My first application, so (laughs) my head was down, so I was all over the place. So that's kind of where it all happened. It just happened so quick. So you
1: were inspired really um, as a woman of colour by George Floyd's death, obviously, just lit something in you, and there was anger, and it was all those emotions. And the Black Lives Matter movement was really—I I had been going for some time, but it was really a lot of more people were engaging with it because of his death. And and this was sort of a moment for you to kind of look at your family story, which is a fascinating story. So let's talk about about where it begins because you start off the book with your own response to George Floyd's uh, murder, and then it goes into your nanny story. So the book is sort of broken up into between your nanny Kathleen's story. Your mom, who you mentioned there, who's Dominique and your own story. And it's in three kind of distinct parts. So let's talk about Kathleen. You mentioned, you know, uh, going to interview her at first on the video and then putting those videos away. How did she feel about going back into her childhood or youth and telling the story, which is, as I say, fascinating? What was her reaction to, to you delving into her past?
2: She didn't really mind. Like all of those years ago, it was kind of just sitting down and having a chat. She didn't really mind. And Nanny's the type of person where, how do I say She just kind of sugarcoats everything. Everything's all right, you know. Um, And I would question those. So throughout the book, she says things. And I'm like, but Nanny, how or why? Or surely you experienced that. But it was kind of like she was oblivious to all this. Um, And I suppose maybe that was her coping mechanism. I guess that's what I'm putting it down to. Or maybe she's just forgot. Sometimes we forget things that we don't want to remember, you know. But she's so amazing and so open to let me do that. You know, I'm so thankful for that. Um, I'm so thankful that I still have her and she's still at 89, still able to hold a really great conversation. Like, we all go off on tangents and she does that herself. (laughs) But, you know, you're able to bring her back and bring her back to the question. But she was so open and... I think she was just so proud that I wanted to do something with this story.
1: Well, let's talk about her then, because it begins when she's a young woman and she's been three years in um, a psychiatric institution, St. Patrick's Hospital, because she was so traumatized by the death of her father, which is your great grandfather. And she comes out and... As a young woman, she was still very found very difficult to deal with her, her dad suddenly dying and she decides to go off to London. So that's kind of where, where we meet her. And she meets this man in London after working in a hospital, a Jamaican man. And this is where it all kind of, I suppose, starts. Tell us about um that love story and that kind of beginnings.
2: So Nanny always refers to herself as a bit of a loner and that she still refers to herself like that. Nanny's very, very quiet always had loads of friends, but quiet, never drank, never smoked, never went out to parties, which we talk about in the book. But a friend that she lived with um, was quite opposite to her, one of the nurses, um, was quite wild, Um, used to go out drinking and smoking and dancing. And they lived together in um, Walthamstow. And um, Larry, I don't know how this, my nanny's friend Jean met Larry, but she met him. He had a car, he used to help her come back with furniture for the house and Obviously, Larry clocked my nanny and kind of asked her to come out one day. And Jean said, Jesus, you're wasting your time. Kathleen's not into anything like that. And obviously, seeing something, he went back to the house and they kind of became friends. And then I guess they went to the cinema together and a spark sparked, I guess. And like nanny says, she never seen when she met Larry, she never seen colour. Now, a lot of people will argue that now and go, but that's rude. You don't see colour, you know. But that's just the way my nanny is, whether you were purple with green spots or blue or nanny, just said you're a human. So that didn't matter to nanny, you know, and we talk about that when she did meet him, how that was seen in society. And nanny doesn't recall any of that being a problem or people looking at them. But that is my nanny's experience. And then when it comes to my mom's experience, she is a person of color, so she noticed it more. And was more aware of it. So
1: this white uh, Irish woman comes over to London, meets this Jamaican man. They set up the home together and they have three children, including your mum, Dominique, two boys and a, and a girl. But you, 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 it's really interesting, like you said in the book, that um, your nanny, uh, Kathleen, she didn't see colour. She didn't notice that, you know, having children of colour was any big deal. There was no no issue about it. And yet when she would go home to Dublin, the first time she told her mother, um, about that she was married. She hadn't told anyone she'd got married. She hadn't told anyone she had, you know, a family over there. And when she told um her mother, that, that wasn't a good reaction, was it?
2: Well, as I say in the book, she kind of held off. Larry had said to her, you know, I'll come home with you the first time with, with my mum. And Nanny was like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And then she kind of said it when she was at a train station and kind of just went on her toes, Do you know? She kind of said it in the past, you know, we say these things because we don't want, we don't know what the reaction's going to be, so we say something and then leg it away or, you know, try and get out of that situation. And that's how she told her mother and there was no response. But, you know, Nanny knew deep down maybe it would have been a problem or it was going to be a problem because why hold back that information? That's huge that you've just got wed, Um you know you're creating up a family you're doing really well actually because she had been in hospital for three years really unwell and maybe might not have come out of that situation so she should have been proud in herself to be sharing these huge things huge huge things but she chose not to till she was getting back on the boat you know um, so for me that speaks volumes but in the book Nanny's like oh no but sure that's just how it was we just said things in passing and we got on with it about our day
1: But her mother was basically saying, we've had enough trouble in this family without that. Her reaction wasn't good to the idea that her daughter had married a black man.
2: Yeah, we've had enough trauma, meaning Nanny had lost her brother. He drowned um, the death of the father and they didn't need any more drama. But
1: your nanny is a very like you describe her as a loner. She's an interesting person because she she had she had this decision uh, to leave Dublin, which was completely out of the blue. She just decided she had to get out of Dublin and go to London. And then she goes to London. She meets this man. She has gets married, has three children. And then one day when your mother, Dominique, uh, her daughter her, is 12, she decides that she wants to come back to, to Dublin, but she's still married her husband was a, a a lorry driver by this stage and she he often sounds like he often wasn't at home anyway so there wasn't much of a relationship there it seems like from reading between the lines in the book but literally Kathleen then just decided one day you know I'm going to go home um and uproots the three kids including a 12 year old so I'm really thinking about your mum, Dominique leaving you know cosmopolitan London where she had a life she had friends she had everything and one day she's getting a boat to Dublin and she's getting a boat forever, not just for a holiday, which would be normal. Tell us about that day, because that's where Dominique's story begins in the book.
2: Yeah. So basically, Mam Mam and the boys came home from school and Nanny was like, get your stuff. We're going, we're going to Dublin. Grab what you can, I guess. And they make this journey, but not known to the children, they were going forever, you know, and Nanny probably had no plan. If I know my nanny well enough, she was going to wing it, you know. Um, And she didn't have a plan. We, We talk about that in the book. But I just, for me, visually, I work with visuals anyway. But can you visually imagine coming home from school as a kid and just being uprooted out of your home, your life, your surroundings, your friends, your bed, and having to get on a train, getting getting a train to, to the boat and then arriving in Dublin City, which Mam does a really great description of Dublin City in the book. It's just this whole new world, whole new world, not as busy as London, for one, and not knowing where they were going. I just pitched them traipsing into Dublin City, not knowing where they were going because there was no plan.
1: And just to say as well, this 12-year-old girl and her two brothers, three children of colour with this woman who's white and it going to a Dublin where there wasn't very many people of colour at the time. And, and they went to Gardiner street. It's really vividly done, um, to, to stay in a B and while basically your nanny trolled the streets of Dublin, trying to see how they could get a, a house. It's, and, and meanwhile, there's this young girl, 12 year old, not knowing what the hell is going on and what what is her mother doing? It's it's fascinating when you think about it. Reading it, it's like bizarre. Yeah,
2: it's so bizarre. She's so it's so bizarre. And I just think she's such a hero because I can't imagine what was going through their heads. I can't imagine, you know, she she talks about the smoke and just accents. There we go back to accents. Imagine imagine never hearing these accents. Sounding different, looking different, three Afro, big, huge Afros with a white woman traipsing through with all their belongings. My mum had a pillow and not knowing where they're going and being in a B&B and this is all new. And mum asked nanny, well, where are we going? When are we going home? You know, when they came to, we talk about it in the book, when they did come over, there was an, an, my nanny sister, um, my mum's auntie, Margaret, who lived in Galway. And they were very, very close to her. And they used to go back there for trips But it was a trip for a week or two, you know, by the seaside, not in this city. So I I can't imagine what was going through my nanny's head either, because you've got three little humans that you need to mind. And which blows my mind even more is, was she didn't know where she was going. But yet again, she had family, Uh, family, we're in this country. Why? Uh, Maybe that's a proud thing. Maybe that's an embarrassing thing. Maybe... There's so many things there that I try to digest and think, but why? Why didn't you just reach out and ask for a little bit of help?
1: Yeah. I mean, she's gone back to the city where she grew up. Yeah. Her her, you know, she grew up in Merino, her family, she had still family all around there. And yet she comes to Dublin and doesn't tell anyone she's there. And and anyway, she ends up getting this uh horrible sounds like a hovel in Sean McDermott Street, really. It was I think it was you wrote in the book that it's some of the worst housing in Europe at the time in terms of the state of and disrepair and just the facilities. And again, that's where they end up living. And there's a very uh, horrible description of the rats, the size of kittens that used to run through the place. Yeah. And again, your mum, Dominique, planted here now. This is her new life. and um, She's away from all her friends, away from her school. And so it could be terrible, but it ends up being, um, the way you describe the community that your mum you know, joined into around Sean McDermott Street in the inner city of Dublin. There's a lot of joy there too. Tell us about what she found once she got over the massive culture shock of
2: yeah. being there. Well, Mam described it, and we talk about it in the book, is it was her idea of hell. Like coming from a three or four bedroom house, I think it was a three bedroom house in the UK that had a conservatory. They had their own room. Um, They were warm. I'm sure Nanny struggled over there too, which she did. We spoke about that food and everything. You know, how long were we here for? But the surroundings that she lived in, I think they just had to get on with it. They were here and that was it until the next move or till the next decision was made. But I think what sticks out in my mind is, Mam did didn't know what, you know, kids were knocking on the door. That's what Irish people do. We knock on each other's doors. I mean, you go in for a cup of tea, you borrow a bit of milk, a bit of sugar. These people were knocking up and going... Hey, uh, we're your neighbours, Peggy, Anne, Sue, or whatever. Uh, Nice to meet you. If you ever need anything. This was so new to ma'am. People knocking on the door and asking for your daughter to come out and play. That was all new and kids just playing out on the street. You know, you went to people's houses, as my ma'am said, in the UK. People were playing out on the street, sitting on the steps outside. You had people coming down the stairs in the morning, going to sell their fruit and veg up in Street, with big prams. Kids everywhere. But I wanted community to be a big part of the book because I think that got my man, my brother's through and my nanny actually was the love of the community and the people of the inner city, which is still held in the inner city today, still held in a lot of a lot of communities. Um, but I wanted that to be such a huge part because would Mam have lasted if she didn't have that community? I, who knows? Who knows? You know, they kind of took her under a wing. Yes, they asked questions, of course are you adopted? Why is your mom wife? You know, little kids don't understand, you know, and you understand little kids asking these questions and teenagers and asking about the accent and, you know, but that was such a big part for my mom, you know, like people asking them questions of where you're from. And there's a part in the book where she was in the inner city and she was going to a school where one of her, my nanny's sister's daughter was, and she was soon to be taken out of that school because my mum was in the school next door. I if you remember that in the book, yeah. But um, that's madness. That was family. Yeah. Uh, so all she had was this community. Do you know? And we refer to she. She must have thought it was crazy. You know, she probably thought, you know, these people actually speak in English because the accent's so thick. The accent's yeah. so thick, you know. But there was a point in the book where she wasn't at home. She never felt at home, which is really funny when she first came back, even though community was great. This wasn't her home or what she was used to. And then this guy had said to her, go back to where you're from or whatever. And my mum's initial reaction from, well, I'm from Shaw McDermott Street, buddy. Actually, you go home because <laughs> I'm home. So he was, a, he was a
1: culture. Yeah. And she said to him, go back to whatever bog he came <laughs> yeah. from. I'm from Shaw McDermott Street. Exactly. So. The new Safe Ireland Survivor Fund, in partnership with Airbnb, enables Safe Ireland to contribute to sustainable supports for women and frontline services and to provide focused actions for children. You can play a critical role in helping to protect more women and children from abuse. Donate directly to your local domestic violence service or to the national work of Safe Ireland. Go to www.safeireland.ie for more information. What fascinated me was how your mother wasn't full of rage towards towards her mother because she had been uprooted you know she'd been taken out of what was a relatively comfortable situation where there was lots of people of color around she wasn't like the only one but she, and put in a place where she was completely the odd one out in every way and more uncomfortable and without the comforts of home and all those things you know did she not I, I kind of just thinking about myself I'd have been in a rage
2: of course she have got to have been of course she got to have been of course, there has to have been anger there. You know, at that age, you can't make decisions yourself. The decisions are made for you. And this decision was ludicrous, ludicrous, ludicrous. And yet again, I still don't know the full. Like we talk about that in the book, do we ever know the full reason why she came back? Yes, we refer to my nanny coming back because nanny said there was a calling when she came back. She was only back not long, and she realised her Down syndrome brother Joseph was in a home and. She felt like she was called back for that. And maybe, I, I don't know. I i have a million, million question marks in my head. But who knows? But of course, I, I, I think of course. And, you know, I couldn't help it. My mum's really, really strong, a really, really strong woman. But I couldn't help to see the tears flow down in her face as she recalled these. So of course, but like anything, we suppress things and we don't really deal with things till we're older, till we have to. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean we touched on it there the race issue and I think that's that's it's a thread in the book but it's not the whole book it's interesting because there's so much in this as a story but I suppose let's talk about that, because then eventually, um, as what happened in the inner city, a lot of those flats and tenements were pulled down. People had to move. So she'd made this home and this great community there. And then they had to leave to go to, of all places, Blanchardstown. And <laughs> at that time, Blanchardstown might have been, you know, Galway because it was, you know, it it was a trek to get there. It was almost the countryside. Well, back it was then. back in the day, it yeah. was the
2: countryside. And originally they had been offered a place in Tallaght. And I talk about it in the book, my nanny, like people were often offered places in Talley, Coolock, Artane, uh, Blanchestown, And a lot of the people of the inner city were like, we're not taking Talley. Because Talley, you could get to America quicker than you could Talley. Like that was even further, do you know? Um. So here we go again. Mom is at a point where she's getting settled in this place and we've got to move again. Yeah. You know, Parnell Tech was too far for her to commute into town, so leaving friends that you've made there. Um, who mum is still friends with a lot of a lot of the, the girls she grew up with in um, Sean McDermott Street, still keeps in touch and goes on holidays with them and stuff. And then moving to the countryside, which it was, I think mum said the bus took about two hours. So she's coming out here going, what? This is hell.
1: <laughs> I mean, there's All an interesting the- story of when they got to Blanchester and got to the house, uh, your nanny went up to try and get her into another into a school and she was told, no, there was no place. And then they found out that a neighbour had got her girl into the same school, but even though she'd applied afterwards. So there was clearly something going on that was a, from the beginning. There was an issue with the school in terms of your mother's skin colour, that she wasn't being accepted. And then she was really badly bullied by one one of the teachers when they eventually let her into the school. Yeah.
2: Nanny heard that and obviously was annoyed because she'd just been up at the school the week before. And she was told there was no people uh, there was no room so it happened as nanny said in the book they probably thought people weren't going to talk you know all these new people in this new area you know he's going to talk everyone's going to st- stick to themselves anyway nanny was speaking to one of the mams and she'd got her daughter in he was the same age as my ma and my nanny was obviously livid went straight up to the school and was like but why you said there was no room and then i know this girl has just got in is there a problem with my my, my daughter's skin color and with that, they took her in. But her life was hell there. But yet again, community saved my man in that, that skill. You know, and none really abused her. Used to call her Tick all the time because religion wasn't a thing. Catholic in the UK, so mum didn't know religion. Um, and she used to make a show on my ma. And cut a long story short, it's in the book. But abused her, abused her, abused her. Um sure you wouldn't know this, you wouldn't know that. Until my mum lost it one day. Absolutely lost it. I was expelled from the school and obviously the, the, the children had been going home and reporting to their parents and all the parents went forward and said, that's absolutely wrong. Dominique has actually being bullied for months because Sam or Paul or whoever's been coming home and telling me. And mom was accepted back into the school. Yeah. So she, it was, it was more the, the adults of authority. You know, it was people in the places that shouldn't have had a problem, where the community and the teenagers and the kids all stood by my nanny and my ma and my two uncles. Always. Now, they came up against things. You know, there's a thing in the book where somebody said something about my uncle James or Jason, mam being the powerhouse as she went up and goes, here, what's your problem? She minded the two of them. Not much between them. You know, nanny used to be out work and she, she was their second mother, basically. And here, what's the problem? Gave him a thump or whatever. And um, he came back a couple of months later, knocked on the door and asked them all to come out and hang out and go to the disco. And my mum thought, right, here we go again. She was getting ready to start at him again. And he said, no, I actually really respect you putting me in my place. And they're still friends to this day.
1: Yeah. Like that just come true. I mean, it's like there's so much acceptance and love and support from the community, as well as all the things that we expect in terms of the racism which is as I say it's it's always there and then going on I suppose there's such parallels between the three of you the three women in this story you know and London features because you yes, know your it? nanny went off to London and decided to come back and um, because Dominique then your mom, she decides to go off to London, but feels this pull to return um home also. And she was a single mother as well, bringing you up, wasn't she? Yeah, because that's that's a difficult and a lonely thing that she she did as well. Like she just sounds like a strong, such a strong woman.
2: Oh my god, she so is, and you don't you don't really realize them things till you hit an age yourself. You don't really realize how amazing single mothers are, because you're making a decision for a little human, but that's a job of two people, really. You know, it's only really, Jesus, not that, not that I, I, I underestimated the amazing job she did, but you only start to really realise and appreciate things and notice when you become an adult yourself. Like she had been through a lot and then having to do all that with me in Paris and did a cracking, cracking job. A crack, I think I'm all right. My sister's all right. (laughs) Do you know what we've done? All right. Um, that's scary. That's really, really mm. scary having to do that. She's seen her, her own mother struggle being on her own, do you know?
1: And let's get into your story then, because your one starts with, I suppose it's your first experience of realising you were so-called different or that somebody othered you and made you feel different. And it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a sad story that's actually had repercussions through your life <laughs> for a long time. So tell us about that. You had this caravan. Um, where was the caravan again? We used to have um,
2: a mobile down in Betty's town.
1: Betty's town yeah beautiful down yeah. there and uh, the typical sort of Irish Dublin summer holidays oh, yes. or whatever and something happened down there when you were 10 that was the first time you realized that your skin color made you stand out and made you different so tell us that story
2: yeah well I always knew and it's, it sounds so contradictory I always knew I was brown or mixed race I knew I was always told that I knew I wasn't the same as the other little girls in my class you know um but this was the point where I really questioned it um, what am I? What is my identity? Where, Jesus, where do I fit in? Yeah, I was after having a bit of a Barney or words I should say, as kids do when they're kids. And um, I'll tell you what it was. Me nanny was after buying, you know, on Deccan and there's plastic white and white chairs and a table. And my cousin's friend was messing around with a lighter, and he was burning the side of the table. And I says, "Here, me nanny's after me. Nanny never had a penny, bless her. We'd be down there all summer." I Leave the chair alone. We nanny's had to spend a fortune on that. And he... You know, you have words, blah, 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 blah. And um, I think I gave him a thump or something. And um, then he called me a packie. Something came up about dirty. And um, and he was like, well, my, my skin is different to yours. You're dirtier than me. Your skin is dirtier than mine. And... I was just like looking at my own skin, looking at his skin. Going well, well, I actually my skin does look dirtier than yours. It is a totally different colour to yours. And Jesus, I'd got into my head then that I was dirty. Um, went into the shower, scrubbed, scrubbed myself. You, you know, I was Jesus. I like, eleven maybe. I knew that I couldn't wash it away, but I suppose you think you probably can. I th- I don't know. Um until the point where I was raw and red and I came out to me nanny and I was like, Jesus, I just don't understand. Am I dirty? Explain it to me. Explain where I am. What am I? And, um, yeah, even thinking about, like I can see this little human in, in, in the shower, like that's, and for years now I understand why I have all the bleeding mentalness about cleaning, (laughs) you know? Um, like There was a point there where I had no skin on the palm of my hands just from cleaning myself all the time until my mom and my nanny had to sit me down years ago and stop. This needs to stop now. You know, cleaning. And I still do. I carry wipes around me for my shoes. <laughs>
0: I'm mad. <laughs> if you ever
2: need a wipe, I have them. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, like, they were words that really hit a chord with me that day. And then for years, I... You know, talk, I'm talking about this a lot lately is we never had mixed race Irish on a form to tick or black Irish to tick. I wasn't black. I wasn't white Irish, but I ticked the white Irish box. And that was the box I always ticked.
1: When you go for jobs, like acting jobs. I
2: did. Yeah, I did. I did. And then I came to drama school. Um, the end of drama school, you're doing your, you're doing your CV for your showcase or whatever. And I ticked white Irish. And uh, my dance teacher was like, what the hell? You're you're not white. And I was like, but I don't have my box to tick. I don't want to lose the Irishness of me. I don't want to just put down mixed race. I don't want to just tick a black box. I'm mixed race and I'm Irish. I don't want to lose that box. Do you know? So I think on this form I put down mixed race. That really got me thinking. well, no, I am. I knew I was mixed race. This sounds bonkers. I'm aware that this probably sounds mental. But I was just trying to figure out my... My box, <laughs> you know, but I never, never, ever wanted to lose the Irishness because I'm Irish. And I don't think I could be any more Irish. Do you know what I mean? If I try it. So, yeah, and then that sparked. And now we have these boxes, which is great.
1: So what do the boxes say now?
2: We never have to do these bleeding boxes. Should never have to do them anyway. <laughs> do you know <laughs> what I mean? You are what you are. Um, you've got your mixed-ace Irish. You've got your black Irish. Um. Which is great, which is great. The people now uh, can identify where they're to go. Do you know what I mean? There was just we never had that, Um, but they they were two real big points where I actually had to go. Jesus, what am I here? Um, What is my part? (laughs) Do you know what I mean?
1: I think it's you're really getting to the heart of, of I think, what motivates you with this book is what is Irish and who, 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 who do we let in and who do we exclude and what are we losing when we're doing that? I mean, that question, where are you really from, is something that I think every um, person of colour that's been on this podcast or that we speak to has had that in some form through their life. This idea that the colour of your skin must mean you know, that there must be some other story behind you or you're not allowed to be Irish because you don't look like sort of all these other people. Where have you landed with all of that? And what what are you hoping that will come from the book from that perspective?
2: You know, it depends on the mood you're in. I've had this question. It depends on the mood you're in. I'll be totally honest. You know, other people might not agree with me, but it depends on the mood you're in. And it depends on how it's asked. They're standing in front of you. You can see the body language. You can see the eye contact You know if they're taking the mick out of you or not. Do you know what I mean? Or it's a genuine question. Um, If they're intrigued, well, yeah, I I know you say you're Irish, but you look like maybe you're a mix, or is there anything else there? That's grand. But it's it's that question of, ah, but Jesus, where are you really from? So my question to people is, what does an Irish person look like? Do you know what I mean? We don't all look like leprechauns and, you know, that's, that's a drawing. Do you know what I mean? People have this picture in their head of what Irish people look like. Well, actually, now Ireland has black and brown people. Do you know what I mean? It just so happens that there's a mix there. And if people are getting better at it. Absolutely, they are. But it baffles people. It, it throws people, like really throws people. I was, had a boxing session yesterday, I'll say no names, but I had a boxing session yesterday and I went down to the gym to, to, to do a bit of a session after it. and a trainer there was like, Jesus, your accent. Oh, oh my God, it's amazing. I just wasn't expecting that when you opened your mouth. <laughs> and I was like, all right, what were you expecting? <laughs> do you know what I mean? But it does, it genuinely throws people genuinely really and it's not always a bad thing and it's not always a rude thing or you know I'm not gonna I'm, I'm not saying that at all people are genuinely interested and if we don't ask how are we're gonna learn what's right what's wrong to ask it's just how it's asked you know it's nearly like sometimes you're lying <laughs> people look at you like you're lying are you, are you mad <laughs> no but you know do you know what I mean
1: And you've some good words in the book, I think, for people who, because I think very often people are afraid to speak up when they hear racism or they see things happening and they're afraid to make a fuss and say it. But you're really saying in the book to people to stand up and to call out things when they see them and to stand up for people.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I had an encounter with a guy there, a man, um, last year and nobody did anything calling me the n-word and I would have likened somebody to have have gone uh, would have taken my back actually it was this is a grown-ass man who felt the need to just blur out the n-word straight away you know uh, uh, and that's mad that that's the first place he goes why couldn't he have called me a silly whatever do you know what I mean it was literally a case that we were... It was Christmas shopping and we both... You know, when you're walking towards each other and you're both trying to go in the same direction, I went, oh, sorry. And he's stupid. Why was that the first thing he said? Like... What's going on for that man? Mm. Why have you so much like... That's somebody that has hate in their body, to use a word like that. I just think that's so mental. That somebody would go straight to that. I just... Mm still don't understand that, um there could have been a million and one names he had to call me there mm. you know
1: do you think it's important um Jade that people confront their own racism and accept that we're all to some degree uh the way even women can be sexist and misogynist as well uh, that we're all there's racism in all of us, and that's something that we need to kind of talk about more and be open about more 100%. in order to get better
2: a hundred percent there's racism in everything in absolutely everything um even when it comes to the queer community. You know, I need to educate myself on that. I might say the wrong things. But if we don't ask or don't pull up, how are we ever going to improve? Do you know? And it's that thing, you know, I say it myself, well, you don't know what to say anymore. You don't know what to do anymore. And sometimes you feel like that, you know? You're like, I'm in this situation, how do I... So you ask. Because if you you don't ask... uh, uh, how are you going to know the right terminology or the right words to use? But I definitely think going forward, people should, if they hear something, say it. And that's not just about race, that's about anything. If you hear somebody being obnoxious to somebody, you pull them up. And, you know, you support that person. They're after being, they're in a vulnerable situation. They've just been attacked or whatever said to them. You know, like, for for, for me, I would do that. Um, anyway, you know, and sometimes things like that can get you in trouble. If there's drink field involved and there's an argument and you say something. I mean, know your situation, I guess, too. But there was a thing there with my mum. My fr- one of my friends, Fiona, teaches gong yoga um, and gong meditation. And we, she did a retreat down in Wicklow Beach, hottest day of the year. And mum was driving into the car park. She was meeting us down there. And this fellow was hooting his horn at my ma. And they couldn't go anyway. traffic was mad. Now, the police were there directing the traffic. And um, he had his hand on his horn anyway and um, struck his head out of the car. My ma couldn't move. There was people in front of her. And he said, I knew you'd be uh, N-word. The police were there. And my ma got to me, bless her, and she was just, she was, she was late for the event anyway. So there was the panic of that. And then the panic on that. But no, the place was full. And the police were there. Nothing was said. And there was a woman sitting in the car next to him. Why the hell didn't she say something? My my thinking would be, God, she must be so proud of her fella sitting there saying things like that, you know? Like, seriously. I'm embarrassed for you to be in a person like that's company. So I just think it's a case of pulling people up. You know, I think that's how we move forward and that's how we get better. In all aspects of life.
1: Yeah. Do you think Ireland has got better or where do you think things are now to the degree of which, say, race has shaped your mum's life, your life um, and and how things have evolved? Are you more hopeful or do you still think it's...
2: No, I think there's always got to be a touch of racism everywhere. I don't think that's ever going to get uh, broken, unfortunately. But I think we are getting better. I mean, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday and... I feel really honoured at the moment to be in the position I'm in with acting and I'm working at the moment a lot, which is great. And Jesus, I bless myself as I say that. I'm lucky now. It might be dead now in a couple of months, but let's hold on to it. Um, but I'm representing at the moment. You know, there's loads of stuff coming out with black and mixed race and my brown friends at the moment. And there's going to be people sitting at home like me years ago and watching people that look like them on their screens. I didn't have that. And I think that's so, so exciting. I think that is amazing. I think absolutely we're getting better. 110% we're getting better. You know, there's, yeah, it's so exciting. I just didn't have that as a child. And I know all my friends of colour didn't have that either that are in the profession. That's why a lot of people legged it to London. So like, OK, cool, we'll set up here, <laughs> there's better chances. And now, slowly but surely, we're coming back and working in both. You know, that's that's great. But yeah, that makes me so, so happy and so hopeful that we get to see everyone from all backgrounds. On our screens and on our stage.
1: Oh, and speaking of which, tell us about your film, because you, you had a film out this year. Which you starred in, you wrote, you directed, you produced, you did everything.
2: Oh my God. So it was the lockdown as well. Um, A friend actually got in touch with me and he was like, I I really think, look, you're writing at the moment, do this. Yet again, I was like, oh God, I couldn't do that. So anyway, I did and came up with a synopsis and a concept and um, I based it on, there's a bit in the book, I based it, fictionalised it and said it on myself because I needed to act in it. And went forward with the the pitch and I got accepted. Um so I wrote it, I acted in it, I produced it and I got a director because I was I like got a I got a director because I couldn't have done all that on my own, my first piece of thing and yeah, I was just like, No, I need somebody because when you're producing and costuming it, I locationed, I did it all. I was like, I need somebody to tell me if I'm if I'm crap or not on the day <laughs> or change that or do that. I can't do it all. So I got the funding and made it last year. It's called The Colour Between. I never thought of the title. I'm not going to say I did. It was my amazing sister because I sat here for about three days going, Jesus, what could I call this? And she's one of those that just, she's amazing. So she came up with the name. So I cannot take that credit. (laughs) She killed me. So, yeah, we premiered in Galway this year. Um, It's about a couple. Annalise, which I play, and my partner, Chris, have a son. Uh, The child is one. Um madly in love, the three of them. It's their first um first baby and everything's going rosy. But basically, um Chris's mum um Annalise had a relationship with um but unbeknownst to the father who never accepted the colour of my skin. Um so never wanted anything to do with me and wasn't really happy. His son chose to fall in love with me, basically. Um so I had a hidden relationship um with the mother, and the mother died. And basically it's Chris coming home to have the conversation with me to say, look, my mum has died. Obviously I'm heartbroken. I was really close to her and I'm not allowed to go to the funeral. Which is a similar situation to one of the things in the book.
1: Because your nanny's mother just never involved your uh, mother into the family, your mother or your uncles. And so when she died, your great grandmother, your mother and her brothers weren't allowed to the funeral. Oh, they weren't
2: welcome, yeah.
1: There's a scene in the book where your nanny brings your mum to the to the nevin and they're standing at the grave. It's a really poignant bit because um, Dominique, your mum, she's only young. She's a teenager by this stage, I think. And she says, why are we here? Because she'd never had anything to do with um, her mum's mum. Her mum says, uh, we're here to pay our respects. And your mum says, I don't have any respects for, but for she her. She didn't
2: know her, you know. Um, and yet again, that visual, I think is just... Crazy. Crazy. You know, I didn't... There was a part where I wanted to feature something like that in it, but who knows? I kind of left how my film ends, but we don't know what kind of happens, which is a great place to be because maybe there's room for something else after that. Um, I must send it to you, actually, so you can have a little look at it. Yeah, I'd love to see um, it. Absolutely. But that was one of the things that really stood out for me in the family story. Yeah, I say I work on visuals. That visual for me is just three people looking down at a hole of someone they didn't know, but my aunt and nanny at that time needed the support too. And they couldn't give her the support, you know.
1: The book is out now and it's incredible. I'm going to be recommending it to everyone because I think it's a really unusual book and a really interesting way to tell the stories of three women. All three of you are very strong, just real survivors. And and the story of being a person of colour in Ireland told in a very different way than I think we've heard it before. What does your nanny and your mum think now that they're starring in, in a, a book that's going to be on shelves all over the country? Oh God,
2: it's mad. <laughs> it's, you know what, I've wait, been waiting for the penny to drop and the pennies only dropped today, <laughs> publication day. I'm like, oh my God, pinchy. This is crazy. I can't stop smiling and shaking at the same time. Um, You know, it was hard to do. We came to bumps in the road where... We got to points and it was like, "What oh God have I bit off more than I can chew here?" Um, mom's opening old wounds and there's so much here. Will we go forward? Won't we go forward? What will we do? Um, arguments and you know the usual with things like this. Um,
1: I do. It's really yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. So I kind of thought to a point I had bit off more than I could chew, and was I doing the right thing? And was I gonna upset people? And th- should I be talking about this? What's my place? I didn't really know, but they're super excited. We went out for dinner, um, nanny, mum, me, last night, and my sister Paris. We went out for dinner, and it was just really lovely. Nanny just keeps going, "Oh, it's lovely, isn't it?" She doesn't quite. I don't think she quite understands. Bless her. And mum's excited, you know. Uh, the support has been amazing especially here within in Blanchestown, the community. Um it's yeah, it's been really great. And like that, I've I kind of it's out in the world now. I don't wanna sit and think about it too much or how's it gonna do or the message is there and however people want to perceive that or take that, it's there for you in the book. I can't worry how what you feel about it. I, I'm not gonna actually take that on. <laughs> I've done my part, I've done my work and yeah. It's out there, I suppose. So we're all excited and you loads of people asking what's happening next and um everybody really loves Mum's part in the book. I think Mum's part is really, really great and really brings the pictures and it's so, so honest. I think everyone just wanna hear more from my ma, to be honest. <laughs> so who knows? Who knows? Um whether she'll want to do something else, I don't know. But it's super exciting and I'm I'm so proud of it. It was a book itself, like, I'm sitting here just looking at it. I can't help myself, but keep looking at it. A book was something I never dreamt of, I guess. You know, I always dreamt of having, you know, a film or a, a series. Or I just always had these things because I was thinking of my, creating my own work or whatever. But that is amazing, you know, when when we leave this world, it's there. Um. I keep saying to me, "Nanny, you're 89, and you have a book. You left your mark, Nanny." <laughs> she just be laughing. She just be laughing. But that's amazing that we've you we've done something like that. And I hope it gives people some insight to our experiences. And I didn't want um, I didn't want it all to be about race. That's not what I wanted from for for our book. I I just didn't want that because it's not all we are. I think we're a lot more than that. And it didn't define us. It doesn't own us. I wanted the book to be about strong, bloody women, and I think it shows. Um, well, at least two. You know, uh, my mum, my nanny, uh, strong women. So, yeah, it's 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 real. I suppose it's happening, isn't it? It's happening. (laughs) certainly
1: is. I think three strong women. I think you can throw yourself in there, Jade, as well, because I I think anybody going around anywhere in the world, actually, um, of colour for ridiculous reasons has to carry an extra burden, which is so stupid because what difference does it make? And I know that sounds very... Basic, probably, but it does. It continuously infuriate me, and I, I'm amazed by the fact that what color people's skin is is um, is a, of relevance to anything. You know, it's like what color people's eyes are. You know, we don't go around telling blue-eyed people to that they're this or they're that. You know, it's the same thing. But for some reason, white people decided that that was the default color, and everything else was different. When actually, anyway, I mean, Emma Dabry is brilliant. I'm sure you're a big follower of of her books and writing and she puts it all in such historical context and and shows how utterly ridiculous and surreal the whole thing really is. But that's a whole other conversation. But I do think I do think your story is so much more than race as well. And I think what shines from this book is the strong women, but also uh, Dubliners and Dublin community and, and the way they rally around people. That is just it's there in such a rich way, and I love that about the book.
2: Oh, well, that's what Irish people do. We're great. I'm massive fans of us. Like, <laughs> we're, we're, we're great. You know, I wanted that to be a part because I am so proud to be Irish. Like, I really, really am. I love the Irish. I, I, I think we're amazing people. You know, we've and that's noticed all over the world. We're grafters. We love to tell a story. We love the crack. And I wanted the crack to be in this book too. I wanted pictures to be made of of the people of Mercer Street and the stories that they told and the work that the women did back in the day because unfortunately that's missed sometimes still. So I wanted it to be, I wanted Dublin to be at its heart because it's at our hearts. And I suppose that's what got Nanny true and me, Ma, true, was neighbours and friends that become family. And that's in the book, you know, it's all about friends becoming, you create your own family.
1: One thing just before you go, we didn't mention, which I I would like to mention. I I said at the beginning of this conversation about your nanny being in St. Patrick's Hospital, being in a psychiatric institution, and she had various things like electric shock treatment. She had a frontal lobotomy. These things were done to her. I mean, that's why she's such an extraordinary person, because she went through all of that, came out and created this other life for herself in England with with loads of challenges and all of that. But at all times, she really, uh, she comes across as this just autonomous person who, despite everything, lived the life that she wanted to live and made the choices she wanted to and was like this protector of of her, you know, and still is of her children and her grandchildren. She's got eight grandchildren. She really is like, well, there's three heroes of this book, I think, but she really is exceptional.
2: She really is. She's great. And uh, you know what her nickname is around Whitestown, where she's from, is Mother Nature.
0: <laughs> She'll give
2: you her last penny. She's great. And she's oblivious to things that maybe she shouldn't be sometimes. She doesn't see the bad in people, but sure. That's a great way to live also, maybe. I mean, she's yeah. 89. She's been through the mill. Uh, yeah, just see the best in people. But yeah, she's gas Like sitting there yesterday, we went for dinner last night just to celebrate the four of us. And um, the man in the restaurant was like, wow. She's like, yeah, 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 I did a book.
1: <laughs> and I love that your three names are on the book. It's called Nanny, Ma and Me. It's an Irish story of family, race and home by Kathleen, Dominique and Jade Jordan. You should be really proud, Jade. It's it's a great, great oh, achievement.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little bit speechless today. I know I've just chatted the ears off you for ages. But I just kind of like, yeah, as I said before, I've been waiting for the penny to drop. Books came in a couple of months, uh, about a month ago, and I was like, yay, they're here. But it's finally hit home today that it's in the world. And, yeah, it's like, whoa, it's whoa. And the support and the love from friends and family is just mind-blowing. I'm so proud of me my me, me mom, my me nanny, and, and my sister was a huge part of this. You know, I asked my sister at a point, did she want to... in a chapter and did she want her own and she didn't want to and that was fine that's absolutely fine but she was a huge part of it and she's at the heart of it too so she has been on the whole journey with us um too so yeah
1: well I think you've put something into the world that is very unique and tells a very different story that hasn't been told I think and you tell it with such heart and there's so much love on every page and I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I'm going to be telling everyone about it. Oh, First thing you. I'm going to get is my mom to read it because I know she's going to love it. So. Oh, great. Um, so, Jade, thank you so much. And I I, I, the best of luck with all your acting because you're on fire at the moment. You seem to be creatively on fire. So I thank hope there's you. lots happening for you. <laughs>
0: Let's hope the
2: stars keep aligning for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think they will. And thanks a for coming on the Women's
2: Podcast. You're so, so welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: That was the brilliant Jade Jordan there. And her book is called Nanny, Ma and Me. And I really recommend it. It's great. And thanks very much to Jade. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Rosheen Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Contact us on social, on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter using at ITWomensPodcast. We're on email too: thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. And we love hearing from you. You. Until the next time, mind yourselves and thanks very much for listening.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.